Our meditation this evening from the text that we have read together from Isaiah chapter 26. There's something quite wonderful about being at peace with God. Reconciliation is that great component of the gospel that explains how God restores us sinners to a place of peace, of fellowship, and communion with Him, but only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ as He shed His blood upon the cross of Calvary. The offended Holy God sovereignly and graciously took the initiative to remove every impediment to our peace with Him. And believers can have because of that reconciliation, because of that external peace that we have with God through Christ. It is possible for every believer then to have that internal experience of peace as well. It was Paul's desire as he wrote to the Romans that God would fill those Roman believers with all joy and all peace in believing. Our text this evening is in the middle of what is commonly known as the Little Apocalypse. Its themes focus on the end times when God will accomplish and bring to fruition all of his purposes as he sets down every element of human tyranny and pride. And although this context in many ways is future, The relevance is the same for us, for the God of the future is the God of the past, and the God of the past is the God of now. So the truths that we see here are just as relevant, they're just as applicable to us as they were to that generation to whom Isaiah was preaching. And among the many themes that are addressed in these chapters is the peace that belongs to the people of God because of the very nature of the Lord himself. And that's the theme that I want us to reflect on this evening. I want to consider the peace that we should have as believers, if you're a believer here tonight, the peace that ought to be your experience because that peace is the believer's right. And there are four propositions, there are four statements that I want us to consider as we reflect upon this theme of peace. I say, first of all, that the prospect of peace is certain. The prospect of peace is certain. It's certain because of the divine purpose. Look at verse 12. Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us. Thou wilt ordain peace for us. And the verb that is used there is not so much a future tense as an expression of that which is constantly happening. Could well translate it in this way, Lord, you have been ordaining peace for us. But the word ordain is a very interesting word that the prophet uses to describe this purposed peace that God has for his people. The verb means to prepare, to establish, 
but it is literally used to put a pot on the fire for cooking. But it says, Lord, put this pot on the stove for peace. What a graphic imagery. What a graphic imagery this is. Usually when you cook something, there's some design in the cooking. Choices are made concerning the ingredients to produce the intended product. And as it cooks upon the stove, the smell of that begins to permeate the entire surrounding. And it creates an anticipation and excitement even for that which is being cooked. It's a pot of peace. It's this that explains what appears to be the odd title that I have for the message this evening, the pot of peace. The Lord is cooking up peace, has been cooking up peace, is cooking up peace for his people. And there's the pot, the pot that is filled with all the necessary ingredients to cook up this peace for his people. The Lord has fixed the ingredients. And the Lord is cooking it up even now. The pot is there for us to taste. So I say the prospect of this peace is certain because it is the expression of the very purpose of God. But it's certain also because it is the divine promise. Look at verse 3. For thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, you will keep him. You will preserve him in this perfect peace. And I say this is a reason for confidence because all the promises of God are yea and they are amen in Christ. Peace is our heritage. You remember Isaiah himself will refer to this in that wonderful 53rd chapter that draws our attention to the suffering servant, Christ who took upon himself all the sins and the iniquities of his people. But Isaiah declares there that the chastisement, the chastisement with a view to our peace was upon him. That there on the cross, as Christ took the sins of his people and paid the price, that horrific price for the sins of his people, the chastisement that belonged to us was placed upon him. And the chastisement then that had a view to accomplishing our peace was upon him. And Christ promised when he was about to leave his disciples and ascend back into heaven after the accomplishing of that redemptive work, Christ said, my peace I leave with you this promised peace, a peace that is beyond all comprehension, but yet a peace that is not beyond our experience. Paul declares in Philippians that this is a peace, this peace of God passes all understanding. And what Paul makes clear in that declarative statement Isaiah makes clear in the grammar of the text. Could I translate this a bit more literally here? Verse 3, that you'll keep him in peace 
peace. The repetition of the word peace. In the Old Testament language, the repetition of ideas was a means of expressing a superlative, means of expressing a wondrous and extraordinary idea. So here is the perfect peace. Our translation captures it nicely. But by putting those two words together, peace, peace. Here is that infinite peace. Here is that peace, again, that Paul declares passes all understanding. A peace that is the right of God's people. Total, overwhelming, in so many ways beyond our comprehension, but yet in the purpose of God, not beyond the experience for God's people. There's peace. So we start here. We start here with a certain prospect. Talking about the peace of God is not just theory. It's not just some aspect of theology, but it is that which is certain because it is based on the very purpose of God. The word of God that can be nothing else but true. This peace is not simply wishful thinking. It's not simply crossing our fingers and hoping that This will work out in the end, but by the ministry and the witness of the Spirit of God, the believer can know that inner experience of this peace. Peace, peace. The prospect of peace is certain. But the second thing we learn from the text is this, that the foundation of peace is firm. The foundation of peace is firm. The basis of our peace, the locus of our peace, is found in the Lord himself. You see that in verse 4. Trust ye in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Peace is not attained by self-focus. Peace will never be experienced by looking just on the inside, certainly not looking at the circumstances of this world, looking around us. And I suppose many are not experiencing the peace that ought to be theirs as believers because they're looking for that peace in all the wrong places. No, we often know what it is to have struggles with our faith, know what it is to have struggles with our assurance of faith, But so often those struggles, so often those struggles are because we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking on the inside. I don't know any believer. I don't know any believer. I don't care how mature he is in the faith, how long he's been a believer, that will be satisfied with what he sees on the inside. Our faith is weak. Our faith ebbs and flows. And how can we be satisfied with what we see? The inside, that's not where we find the firmness, our peace. Our peace is going to be found as we look outside of ourselves. We look outside of ourselves to the verities of God, the truths of God, to God himself. Not self-focus. Don't look for this peace in the wrong places. So this firm peace is 
as firm as the everlasting covenant. It's as firm as the everlasting covenant that God has entered into with his people. This chapter is filled with references to Jehovah, to Yahweh. I think I counted there are at least 12 references to that divine name here in this one chapter. Chapters filled with references to the Lord Jehovah, to Yahweh, the covenant name. That name that speaks of grace. That name that speaks of salvation. That name that speaks of faithfulness. It's important for us to realize that the names of God, the titles of God, particularly in the Old Testament, New Testament as well. But particularly in the Old Testament, these names of God, these titles of God are never used haphazardly. But they are part of the divine revelation, the divine communication that God is making of himself to help us understand something of his character, to understand something of his work, to understand something of his person. Many titles of the Lord, but this one name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, however you want to pronounce it, in our authorized version is typically all capitalized as Lord. But you have the interesting expression there, do you see it in verse 4? You trust in the Lord, notice all capitals, that's Yahweh, Jehovah. For in the Lord, all capitals, Jehovah, you have the juxtaposition. The first Lord there, Lord Jehovah, is the abbreviation. It's an abbreviation of the whole term Jehovah or Yahweh. It's Yah, Yah. You know Yah, hallelujah. You know that expression, hallelujah, hallelujah, that's praise, Yah the Lord. So Yah is an abbreviated form of this divine covenant name. Just opposed then with the full form, Jehovah, Yahweh. So in Yah, Yahweh is everlasting strength. And I say this reference to the name, the personal name of God, Yahweh. Jehovah brings us to the very essence of the covenant that God has made. And our peace then is going to be as firm as that everlasting covenant. A name that speaks of God's self-existence. A name that speaks of God's independence and God's sovereignty. But I say it's a name that is particularly used in reference to God saving his people. As close as we have any definition of Yahweh is what we have there, remember, at the burning bush. As God reveals himself to us, reveals himself to Moses there at the burning bush. And he says, I am. I am. I am. The eternal self-existence. It's the name that the Lord Jesus used in one of his controversies with the Pharisees. Before Abraham was... I am. It speaks of that eternal existence, but I say it's a name. They're at the burning bush. This is the I am that was going to deliver the people from the furnace of affliction, from Egypt in the place of bondage, the Savior God. And so as we reflect, as we look to Jehovah, we look to Jehovah, we find there the sensible reason. The sensible response is to experience then the peace that comes from his everlasting covenant. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. 
But this foundation is as firm as firm can be. I don't know how else to say that. This foundation is as firm as firm can be. Notice the end, verse number four. For in Yah, Yahweh is everlasting strength. What the authorized version translates here as everlasting strength literally is the rock of ages. He is the rock of ages. What a title that is. What a title that is of the God of heaven. Hebrew language has various words for rocks. Word for pebbles, word for medium rocks, word for cliffs. This particular word speaks of a great boulder, a great huge immovable boulder, that which cannot be moved, that which is firm, huge, a place of protection, a place of comfort. This is why Moses said there's no rock. There is no rock like our rock, boulder, a rock of ages, a rock of remote times, a rock of remote times, times past, times future, plural here of the word ages, remote times, extends, extends that over all time, he is, therefore, because he's the rock, that which is unmovable, that which is firm through all times. It speaks of his immutability. It speaks of his absolute consistency. The immutability of God. The unchangeableness of God. Because he's eternal. He's the rock of ages, the rock of remote times. He's the God of eternity. I suppose, of all of the perfections of God, and we know what those perfections are, the Bible reveals it to us, Westminster Shorter Catechism, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What a description of the one true God. But he's infinite in regard to time. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. And I suppose of all of the perfections of God, the one that boggles my mind the most is the fact that God is eternal. We're creatures of time. Everything that we know is determined in relationship to time. Succession of moments. I have no problem. I have no problem thinking about time past. And I can anticipate time future. But what is the present for us? What's the present for us? How long is the present time? I say something in the present and no sooner do I say it that now it's past. For us, the present time is more of a notion than it is a reality. We live in that succession of moments and therefore we are subject to change. I haven't always looked like this. My hair has not always been this color. What happened? What happened? Time. Time. I'm subject to time, and because I'm subject to time, I'm subject to change. 
succession of moments. But eternity, in one way, how do we even define eternity? Timelessness? No succession of moments? This is why God is, is. Why Jesus could say before Abraham was, I am a constant, unceasing present. There is no time, can I put it this way? There is no time for God to change. His immutability, his unchangeableness is inseparably linked to the fact that he is eternal. He's the rock of remote time. The everlasting strength, the rock of ages. We can understand that pretty well in the past. We can look at the past, history, biblical history, and can we see, yes, God was a rock to all those people. We can see the past and testify that God is the rock. And we can look at the future as the Bible reveals it to us and say, yes, God is unchangeable. Sing that hymn sometimes. God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Yeah? But what about now? What about now? I see it in the past, yes. I see it in the future, yes. But what about now? God is now. God is the same today as he always has been. So if we can get our minds fixed, if we can get our minds fixed upon Jehovah, to find in God to find in the covenant that God has made with his people that firm foundation, how firm the foundation for the peace of God's people. The foundation of peace is firm. The third thing I say is that the means of peace is faith. The means of peace is faith. Now truth is truth. Regardless of Your response to truth, truth is truth. Truth is not something that we believe into existence, nor is it something that can be denied out of existence. The truth of God stands. And this truth is where our faith and our confidence and our resting must indeed be. Faith becomes the means of appropriating It's the means of appropriating to ourselves by the Spirit of God that which is true. There's the fact of peace. God has put in that pot all the ingredients necessary for the peace of his people. Redemptive work of Christ and right down the line. Pots prepared. But can we appropriate that? Can we bring that in to our experience? The fact of peace can become the experience of the people. It can be our experience. But you can't separate the faith from the foundation. 
So often as we try to evaluate our faith and look at our faith, we're looking at the wrong end of faith. We look to the object. It is the object of faith that determines the value of faith the object of faith, we look away from ourselves and we find our solace and we find our confidence, we find our peace, we find salvation only in Christ. Faith is the means whereby we appropriate, whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. So it's a peace that is appropriated by faith. Now I say this peace, achieving faith, is in the head. This peace achieving faith is, starts anyway, in the head. It's not make-believe, it's not wishful thinking, but I say it's in the head. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. I'm going to give a very literal translation of verse 3. Kind of awkward English, but I want us to see the import. Here it is. A mind propped up. You will preserve peace, peace. Because in you is one in a state of trust. Do you get that? A mind propped up. You will keep, you will preserve peace, peace. Because in you is one in a state of trust. Thoughts that are propped up. We're talking about the head. The psalmist says concerning the righteous that his heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. In the Bible, the head, the mind, is part of the heart. The heart is the inner man. This kind of peace does not exist in a mental vacuum. It requires a thinking, a mind that is propped up, propped up by truth, I can't consider this without thinking of what Paul says in this well-known text in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Here's the peace of God that passes all understanding, that peace, peace, that will keep your hearts, that will garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen to me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. I don't have time to address all of the significances of those terms, except to say this, that each of those things, each of those truths, those virtues that we are to think about 
are terms elsewhere that describe Jesus himself. So can we sum it up in that way? A mind that is propped up with the truths of Christ. A mind that is propped up by the truths of Christ. To think. I I don't know how thinking works. But I know that if you think about something long enough, if you think about something hard enough, you can't help thinking about it. This is not scientific for sure, but it's like the thinking puts a groove in our brain. What are you grooving your brain with? What thoughts? Groove your brain. Here are the truths. Here are the props that ought to be grooving our brains so that we might know the God of peace to dwell with us. What do you think about when you're not thinking? Yeah? When you're not thinking about something on purpose, not thinking about something Intentionally, what do you think about? What do you think about when you're not thinking? What comes to your mind? Where does your mind go when your mind is empty, as it were? Uh, Would it be? Would it be that our minds are so grooved with the thoughts of Christ? His purity, his love, all of his virtues, that we can't help but think of him. If we could learn to think like that, the God of peace will dwell with us. But without those propositions, without those truths, we're going to have a mind that sways with fears and doubts and all the what-ifs of life and all the what-ifs of imagination will take over and the doubts and the fears come. There's peace. There's peace that can be had. Experiencing that peace is arresting in the Lord, that one who is in a state of trust, who finds his security, who finds his refuge in the Lord. The trusting man then is one who is constantly trusting, a relaxing in the Lord. So faith. Faith, not something that we generate, not something that we try to manufacture by crossing our fingers or squinting our eyes real tight. No, faith is that which finds its value in the object. Christ is the only object of saving faith. And Christ is the only object of sanctifying faith. Christ is the only object of this peace-giving faith that is the right of God's people. And the last thing I say is this, that the experience or the expressions, the expressions of peace are focused. They're focused in the Lord. The experience of dwelling with the God of peace increases our desire for more 
There's something about the grace of God that is addictive. The more we know of that grace, the more we want of that grace. There's something addictive about God's grace. And the expressions of that desire are given to us here. It's expressed in a waiting. Look at verse 8. O Lord, we have waited for thee. A waiting not in fatal resignation, but with a tense eagerness. This waiting is not resignation. This is not fatalism. This is not just sitting back and just watching what, no. This is a waiting that is filled with anticipation. A waiting that is filled with eagerness and expectancy. Children wait for their birthdays. And they're excited about the coming of that birthday. The older we get, we're still excited to see if another birthday will come. But there's something exciting about the waiting. I like to hunt. And there's a waiting. Sitting on the edge of the seat, as it were, in expectancy. Well, this is the kind of waiting that is in view here. To have that expectancy, that anticipation that God indeed will fulfill his word. Expressed in desire. The desire of our soul is to thy name. And then in verse 9, you have the noun form there. In verse 9, the verb form, my soul, have I desired thee in the night. To want. To crave. To long for. What do you crave? What are you longing for? What do you want? What do you want? There's something about wanting that's in all of us, thinking that what we want, as we get, it'll satisfy. But there's again that expectancy and that anticipation. That's the word here, our desire. What we are craving is not something that God will do for us, but God himself. God is not a means to an end. God is the end. He is that which ought to be the focus of our desire, our cravings. Psalm 37 has that well-known promise that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. I've heard that used so often to be the idea, well, let's give God first preference and whatever, so that he'll give us something over here that I really want. No. No. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're delighting in the Lord, what is the desire of your heart but the Lord himself? And God will not disappoint his people. Those that seek him will find him. If we seek him with all of our heart, the Bible says, we desire his name, his person. Moses said, this is, quoting the Lord, this is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. This is what you're to think about. To remember is to think about something. God says, this is what you are to think about. And you express that then with diligence. 
I'll seek you early. Not a temporal word, but diligence. The diligence with which we seek the Lord. The diligence with which we're going to exercise our desire and our cravings for the Lord. Not passive. But this is what takes precedence over everything else. Nothing is more urgent. Nothing is more urgent than to know and to experience this kind of peace. The Lord makes that promise. You seek me? How many times do we see that promise in the scripture? Seek me, you'll find me. I will be found of those that seek me with all of their hearts. God's not playing games with us. God's not playing a game of hide and seek with us and tells us to seek and now he's always... No, we know exactly where he is. We know where we can find him at the cross. Place of prayer, place of consecration. But to find him. And to come into that experience of the peace of God. That's the bottom line. Enjoying peace is possible. The pot's on the stove. This pot of peace is on the stove, ready for us to be served. So come and help yourself. Help yourself to this peace. Oh, but if you're not a believer here, I'm speaking to believers. This is a peace that's the believer's right. But if you're outside of Christ, if you're outside of Christ, there's no access to this pot. If you're outside of Christ, there is no way that you can know anything of a true peace. You're an enemy of God. And God's an enemy of you. There's nothing in store but judgment. Condemnation. But the gospel offer is to come. Come to Jesus and welcome. And coming to Jesus, you'll find that peace of reconciliation where the wrath of God has been satisfied. Sins are forgiven. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And the kitchen door is open. And there's the pot. Come. Enjoy. Amen. Our gracious Lord. How beautiful are thy words. How beautiful are thy promises that thou hast given to us. Lord, these are things that would be too good to be true if it weren't for the fact that thou art the one that has revealed them to us. Lord, so often we find ourselves living with doubt, with fears. 
when the way to enjoy thy presence and to experience thy love and thy peace has been provided for us. So, Lord, we pray that thou would take thy word, bring thy people into enjoyment of it, bring sinners, draw sinners irresistibly by thy grace to believe, to be saved. Hear our prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen.